0: The title I wanted was Half Brain Christianity, you know, because we're missing half of our brains. It's like, and we're missing the most important half is the one, those, those kind of skills developing that part of our brain is, is the most important. And that's the one we're leaving out. The publisher thought that was a little too negative. Like they wanted something that's positive. (laughs) And so we went around and around and around.
1: Welcome to the Exponential Groups Podcast. I'm your host, Alan White. This podcast is designed to help you take the guesswork out of groups. In each episode, you will discover effective ways to recruit more leaders, form better groups, and make more disciples. Please subscribe to this monthly podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to episode 14. Today's guest is Michael Hendricks. Michael is the co-author with Jim Wilder of The Other Half of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. He is the Director of Transformational Consulting at Life Model Works. He's the former pastor of spiritual formation at Flatirons Community Church in Lafayette, Colorado. He's also served in Argentina, Bolivia, Mexico, Costa Rica, Kenya, South Sudan, and Uganda. He and his wife have three adult children. For the show notes for this episode, go to alanwhite.org forward slash 14, just the number 14. Now, my conversation with Michael Hendricks. Michael, thank you for uh, joining me today.
0: Uh, thank you, Alan. It's good to be here.
1: Hey, uh, boy, this book, The Other Half of uh, Church, it's, it's rocked my world. It's rocked a lot of my friends' world. So I have all kinds of questions for you today. So let's go back to when this kind of uh, rocked your world. So you were serving as a discipleship pastor in a large church. Yeah, you were experiencing some dissatisfaction uh, with how the church was making disciples. Tell us about that. Dissatisfaction was
0: in the whole disciple making process in general. You know, as a pastor of discipleship, I tried a lot of things. You know, including kind of a beginners book, basic training, that kind of because we had a lot of really new believers. I did a five week training in spiritual disciplines, a Bible reading plan, all this kind of stuff. And the thing I kept bumping into is that those things worked really well for some kinds of problems. And they didn't seem to work at all for others. And some people responded really well, others didn't respond at all. I kept bumping up against this word sometimes, like it would work. They seemed to be working sometimes and not others. And so my dissatisfaction was more like it seemed to me that I was missing
1: some big pieces
0: of the puzzle, but I had no idea what those pieces
1: were. Mm. And so from reading the book and knowing the story about at this point, uh, you were introduced to uh, Jim Wilder, who was called a uh, neuro theologian. So what, what did you begin to learn from him, and what in the world is a neurotheologian? So from reading the book, at this point, you were introduced to a neurotheologian named uh, Jim Wilder. So what in the world is a neurotheologian, and what did you begin to learn from him? Yeah, well, you know, in my frustration being a,
0: a discipleship pastor, um, I, I ended up meeting up with a man who, who had done this kind of thing his whole life, and wanted to have lunch with me. And I kind of shared some of my frustrations about the sometimes, you know, where it seems to work so like we're missing big pieces. And he said, well, let's start meeting together and, uh, and studying discipleship. And I pulled some other up another pastor friend in. And he was the one who the first time, you know, so we're reading books. And we're, we're trying to study every angle of discipleship possible. And he's the one that mentioned, you know. He said, you know, we need to make sure we don't also forget the role the brain plays in discipleship. And mm-hmm. that was so outside my uh, way of thinking that I kind of didn't even know what what he meant to say, and it seemed kind of weird even. And so I kind of ignored ignored the topic, and we went on to another topic. But a month later, we met, you know, were meeting every month. Um, he mentioned it again, and he says, you know, I think we're we need to take in count uh, the role that neuroscience plays and how. God designed the human brain to form our character and to mature us. At that point, the second time I, I looked at him, his name's Bob. I said, Bob, I have, and Bob kind of smiled and said, well, let me invite uh, my friend, Dr. Jim Wilder to our meeting next month, our lunch. And I think it, he can probably answer your question better. Uh, than I could, and so it was that that lunch where we sat down, and my friend Bob introduced. And this is Jim Wilder; he's a neurotheologian. He studies the cross section of of the Bible and brain science, and and discipleship, and how we how we learn and grow as Christians. And when he said neurotheologian, I thought I've I've never heard that word in my life. I don't know what that means, but it, I was fascinated. I was interested. I was especially interested because I was right at the point where I was bumping up up against the wall. I mean, I was hitting, I'm basically hitting my head on the wall over and over again as a discipleship pastor. And all of a sudden, there's someone here that has uh, some new information or some new perspective. I've never heard of it before. And so Jim looked across the table at me and he said, well, Michael, what do you want out of this meeting? And I said, I would love to know um, a little bit about the role the brain plays in, in discipleship and how we grow as Christians. And I'd also like to kind of, you know, try some of these new practices out, but maybe are practices, you don't know, we don't normally associate with, you know, discipleship, quote unquote. And so Jim uh, had been dope, bent over and pulled a plastic brain out of his bag and he disconnected the two halves of the brain and started showing us how... Uh, information how our relational surroundings and the way we perceive it flow through the brain what he calls the comp- control processor of the brain and he says we really have two brains we have a left brain and a right brain they, they focus on very different problems so they're, they're very interconnected do they play together they're not separate separate but it's almost like they're like two brains because they really do specialize in, in different tasks and he said the left brain is what we usually just think of as the brain you know it's thinking problem solving talking telling stories, is our willpower, information, all of that kind of stuff is left really heavily left brain conscious. But he said the right brain is actually the more powerful brain, but it's pre-conscious. In other words, it doesn't process words, but it's our relational brain. It processes who are we attached to, who are the people who are most meaningful to us. Um, It has to do with how we process emotions and grow emotional resilience you know, emotional resilience is not a, a term I used a lot in, in discipleship, but Jim says it's one of the keys to be able to stay loving and relational in the midst of intense emotions. It's when we, st- we most easily stop acting like Christians. Mm. We stopped loving people well. And I thought, okay, that's another category I've never thought of before. And in uh, and the right brain is where we build our relational skills, how we interact with people, how we resolve conflict in ways that are humble and kind, and interactive versus, versus uh, you know, I power up on you and try to win. Um, it's where we experience God's presence non-verbally, where we can kind of just feel that God is with us. You know, most of us Christians have been walking with Jesus for a while. There's times when he feels so close and there's other times where it feels like, you know, I feel kind of like I'm all alone in this right now. And that's very much a right brain skill, and you can build your ability to stay connected and sense his connection. It's something, you know, it's a part of the, our, our brain called the cingulate cortex that allows us to feel attuning and to tune with each other. And so, and love, you know, the big thing the, the right brain, really the whole brain, but the right brain, especially, was designed with love. As its basic design premise. It's all has to do with love. And uh, you know, you don't read very much of the Bible or go very far into reading about Jesus life where he, Jesus puts love front and center in discipleship. And so once he started explaining these things, you know, I was, I was all in, I was, I was all in. The one thing Jim said that really shook my world. And he says, he'd said over the last 500 years or so, we've largely put our discipleship into our left brain, but the right brain is really where character is formed. So we're actually ignoring you know, we need a right brain and left full brain discipleship, but we're really ignoring the half of the brain that has the more powerful role. And so he he's really about, let's bring our discipleship back into a full brain discipleship, where we have good information of willpower and choices and things like we've been doing, but we also learn to love each other. Even in distress, we learn to stay relational and sense God's presence and attuned to each other. All those things are very, very important in discipleship, but I never emphasize those things. It was a whole new like virgin territory that had never been explored for me.
1: Yeah, and it's it seems like the dilemma has been, you know, I talked to a lot of pastors and they say, you know, well, how do we disciple a new believer? And I'm thinking- well, good grief. The church has been at this for 2000 years. And yeah. We can't disciple a new believer. I can't. What are we doing? Um, yeah. But uh, now you told me recently that your book, The Other Half of Church, you had proposed a different name to your publisher. What were you going to call it and why? Well,
0: from from those conversations with Jim Wilder and others, you know, when I had the chance to write the book and, and Jim's the one who kind of threw it to me gave me this opportunity and uh the title i wanted was half brain christianity you know because we're missing half of our brains it's like and we're missing the most important half is the one those those kind of skills developing that part of our brain is is the most important and that's the one we're leaving out the publisher thought that was a little too negative like they wanted something that's positive and so we went around and around and around on the title and finally just one of the public one of the people that worked there that wasn't i didn't didn't even know that well he just says well how about the other half of church and i said like "Hmm, okay i think i could live with that because it's you know doesn't really explain what it's about, but it makes you curious. You know, I want to know more. What do
1: you mean? What other half? And, and so that's how we, how we settled on that. Yeah. Well, I actually uh, spent a couple of months going chapter by chapter through, uh, through the book with a dozen pastors. And mm-hmm. we referred to ourselves as the half brain group. Uh, but what we had to say, we, we were half brain, not half wits. Cause that would be a whole <laughs> exactly. other thing. Right. 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 <laughs> so, You know, looking at, you'd mentioned, you know, how the church has attempted to make disciples in the last 500 years, obviously 500 years ago, the invention of the printing press, getting the book back in the hands of the people. Uh, But then it almost seems like the enlightenment just kind of hijacked the whole disciple making process. And, you know, and we've experienced people that are very knowledgeable about scripture. And yet, when you look at their attitudes, when you look at their actions, not quite reflecting. And so one of the things you guys were kind of wrestling with in the book was this: the idea of accumulating knowledge and making right choices isn't actually the formula for developing Christ-like character. And then you talk about four elements that are necessary. So what, what are these elements? I know we could talk for like five hours on yeah. this, but what are these elements and how do they help people to grow, to become more like Christ?
0: Yeah, these elements um, are, are very largely love-based. Everything is centered on love. It's very relational. It's very dominantly placed in the right brain. These skills. We're not saying, by the way, that we think the left brain skills, you know, studying the Bible, studying scripture diligently, memorizing scriptures, praying together, Although praying is, is, is a full-brained activity, you know, listening to sermons, those are all important. What we're saying is that let's bring the other half in and have them both work together. Right. And so in the book, we, we use the analogy of soil because the church, specifically thinking of the discipleship process that Jesus told us to go and make disciples, what we're trying to do is grow people. We're trying to grow a people that learn to live in God's kingdom on earth. And the central quality of those people is that they love really well. Okay. So this is all, again, aimed at love. And so we use the analogy of soil because we drew from a, an experience of mine when I planted tomatoes in our home, and and they just went crazy. They almost like took over our house. We had so many, we had hundreds of tomatoes by the time the frost was coming. You know, in Colorado, you have to pick all your green tomatoes when you know the first frost comes because it'll kill everything. And I picked up something like 400 tomatoes. You know, I was like, whoa, this is easy. Wow. And, and the following year, it was pretty good. And I had about half that much in the next year, less and pretty soon. It's like, I got 20 tomatoes the entire year. And I'm like, what's going on here. And I looked it up online and it said, oh yeah, tomatoes are tremendous users of all the nutrients of the soil. And it'll, it'll run your soil dry. It'll kind of run it down. And so if you plant tomatoes, you need to, ref- you kind of like need to rebuild, constant rebuild the soil with nutrients and everything that the, tomatoes need to grow. And, uh, and we think that's a good analogy for this, that the church, the soil of the church has really run, gotten run down to grow people who love like Jesus loves. You know, we really want to grow a people who can love like Jesus loves. And so the four uh, elements of that soil or nutrients are joy, chesed, group identity, and healthy correction. And we go into the book, you know, there's a chapter on each one of those. You know, joy is really fundamental. That's the one thing, you know, Jim said to us when he's explaining the right brain, our right brain is looping six times a second. And it's really looking for for one thing before everything else. And that's, it's looking for faces that are happy to be with me. It's nonverbal. It's it's a twinkle in someone's eye. It's their face lighting up. Words aren't necessary. And you can tell, ooh, I'm special to that person. And he said, our brain desires that more than any other thing. And it almost functions like gas and gasoline in a, in a car. You know, it's, a car needs more than just gasoline, but without gasoline, it's, it's useless. It won't go anywhere. And so it's kind of the energy. It's the thing that energizes all the other things we do. And so, The things we need to add to the soil of our churches is is that they should be high joy environments where our faces light up. You know, I think in number six, the prayer that's that that uh, God taught Moses, you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you may his face shine upon you, you know, and and we read that um, there's a song about Jesus in the New Testament where it says, you know, uh, awake sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And it's very much pulling from, you know, that that number six verse that feeling Jesus's face shining on us, that he's so happy to be with us. He's glad that we're special to him. And we need to to build that joy with God to be able to receive the joy because a lot of times he's joyful with us, but we just can't receive it. And we need to build that with each other. And that's like the first nutrient you add to the soil. And as you add that, that very you know slowly, the soil starts getting better. And then the second nutrient is related and it's called hesed, which is really the Hebrew word for love, but it's much deeper than just the word love. It's really, it functions as an attachment. That's like a family level of bonding. Imagine a family level of bonding in our church. You know, when my my son graduated from high school and went to college, my wife and I were like in a funk for a a month. It's like the house, there was like a, there was a hole in our house, a void. It's like, oh man, it almost felt like he had died. You know, we were like, wow, we are in mourning right now. Even though we could call him and talk to him and he was doing well and everything, you know, that's the kind of bond that's, you know, with that bond comes, you you know, you, you expose yourself to more sadness because like when people leave the church, that should be a very sad event. It should take us a while to get over that. Even if they're leaving for good reasons, you know, like, yeah, God's called us to a new job in another area, this is really hard, but, it should, you know, hesed love is a love that, you know, it's like a, it's a lifelong concern for each other's well-being, you know, it's a love bond that builds joy, and joy and hesed really have this circle of building each other, when we build joy together, it deepens our hesed, our love for each other, and as our love grows, our joy for each other, so this joy-hesed cycle is just it's like it's like digging a bunch of fertilizer into the soil, right? And if you do that, it'll grow anything, right? Unfortunately, it won't always just grow good things only, just like a garden. You know, if I plowed a bunch of fertilizer into my garden and that's all I did, I would get some lettuce and some tomatoes and some carrots, but I'd also get you know weeds just going nuts everywhere. And so the second two nutrients of healthy soil, more than you know, we have this this good fertilizer with joy and hesed, and then they the second two nutrients focus on are we growing the right thing. <laughs> The first nutrient um, that helps with this task is group identity. And it's really our brain it, as well as looking for how do my, is ask, constantly asking the question, What do my people do in this situation? What do my people do when someone cuts me off in traffic? What do my people do when I win the lottery? What do my people do when my boss loses his cool with me in front of the whole team? Um, What do my people do when my son uh, does a a silly thing and gets kicked out of school? What do my people do when I have some extra money from an inheritance and there's a lot of places to put it? What do my people do when I lost my job and I have no idea what I'm going to do next? When I find myself getting angry at really little things or... I could go on and on and on, and group identity really builds out what the, the larger ten thousand foot Christian characteristics of loving our neighbors, ourself, being slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen, all those kinds of things, and then we're boiling them down into their everyday life, right? Like we are a people who are slow to speak and quick to listen because because that that helps keeps us from blowing up and being impatient with people,
1: right? I like that. I like that. And, and there's actually a, a word in the Greek for disciple that the literal meaning is the idea of to rub off on. Yep. I should have the word memorized so I sound more intelligent, but yep. you know, anyway. But the idea of rubbing off on each other of this is the kind of attitude, this is the way we think about it. And I remember even my my oldest son um, had bought an Apple Watch. I've been telling him for years things don't make us happy. Because if things made us happy, we would be happy. Yeah. And so he gets this new Apple watch and he says, wow, I really thought I would be happier you know, with this watch than I am. And I said, well, why do you think that? He said, because things don't make us happy. And I was like, oh, it sunk in. He heard it. He heard it. Now, one of the things as I was reading the chapter about group identity, and I like the idea of we're people who do this, we're people who don't do that. However, the do's and don'ts kind of went back to some legalism that I grew up with. So how do you keep the this idea of group identity from becoming legalistic? Oh,
0: that's a great question. First of all, we're, group identity is not so much talking about what we don't do. That will get into the fourth soil. It's always about what it looks like to live in God's kingdom on earth. And it has to do, um, again, it's all tied back to loving well. So let's go back to the one I mentioned. You know, we are people who are slow to speak and, and, and quick to listen. Well, I would say a majority of our problem, relational problems we have, have this element in it where I just like, blah, just something came out of me really fast at you. And then later I thought, oh man, I wish I would have never said that to Alan. How, why did that, why did I say that? Sometimes I need to go back and clean up the mess. And like, hey, Alan, I, you know, I, I, I was, this was reminding me of another issue I had and I kind of blew up on you and stuff, right? Um, well, how do we change our spontaneous action to be patients? and slowing this, being slow to speak. That's through group identity. Group identity works in the faster track of our brain that's pre-conscious. It's pre-conscious means it's faster than our, even our ability to r- realize what's going on. Group identity, if we start building it and talking and sharing stories about being slow to speak and quick to listen, and we can also even share stories of when I didn't do that and say, you know what, what it really looks like for me to act like in, uh, in that situation, I really would have acted this way. So we don't even need to be perfect. We can share our failures and still build group identity of when I was quick to speak and blew something up.
1: So this really goes to kind of the idea of the half brain thing, that if if I went and read a book about it, that I might catch a little bit of that. But there's something stronger with being with a group of people who are actually practicing.
0: Right. The left brain knowledge and information uh help us go clean up the mess as well when i'm quick to speak and i then i say something to you that i then wish that i really think you know god jesus i never saw jesus act doing things like that and then i you know the left brain activity would be i I go to you and and apologize and show you where i was going on and we get good together and stuff you know it cleans up messes but how do i change my spontaneous reaction to what happened in that meeting when i kind of blew up at you that's faster than my will will power you know that's one of the the left brain things is willpower. And we'd say, you know, well, next hard here's some, here's some truth. You know, you'll show me that James verse that says, be slow to speak. And then I'll try as hard as I can. The problem is that doesn't work because this is much faster. My my reaction's always already out by the time I realize, oh, that's not the way we act. You know, thinking is too, too slow. But if I was around some people like you and others that are modeling it, we're speaking it to each other. We're, sh- we're sharing our failures and then saying what this would have looked like had it been slow to speak is this way. And this is the way we act. This is who we are as people. My brain actually absorbs that in the faster process. I'll start seeing spontaneous incidents where I'll be slow to speak in a situation where a year ago I would have maybe words would have come out really fast. That then later I'd have to clean up. Almost seems kind of magic. Like when, when Jim was telling me this, I'm thought, you know, does this really work? And, and so, but I thought I am desperate enough. I'll try it. It doesn't hurt. Right. I'll try this. And I would start to see um, some spontaneous changes in situations, intense relational situations that i come away from and think, wow, a couple of years ago, that would have ended very differently. And that's fun.
1: It's fun to see that. Absolutely. Now for a pastor, if it's listening to us, um, this is a new concept. It's not something they necessarily practice in their church. How do you get this started?
0: It's really good to do in the lead team of a church. You know, so, you know, some. Of the, so there's a lot of churches out there that are going, they're reading through and going through the exercises of the other half of church as a lead team or as an elder team or as kind of a, the staff or whatever. And then, so they understand the concepts all, because you want to do this. If pastors can't do this alone in his office. This is very much a community needed effort. And so get people through this and then get them together and say, let's start building a group, group identity for our people here in this church. You can start with some, some basic ones that are true of all times, and then different societies, different communities across our land and across the world have different strengths and weaknesses. And so, you, even in, in different churches, do and there's some you'll you'll start to see some character weaknesses in our church, and then start building specifically that area of the soil up, right? Like rich churches versus poor churches are going to have different kinds of, you know, an immigrant church that's uh bilingual is going to have certain problems and certain benefits the education level will change things the the culture what part of the country and what part of the world you're living in but we're, we're all aiming it at love helping us So, help. you know there's also a, a 12week exercises we can take you through uh in, in at life bottle works called the pandora problem exercises which teach which takes you through group identity 12 weeks in a row really really good and use your imagination you know we're the experts in the theory, but we we want to spread this to as many pastors and lead teams and staffs as, as possible of Christian churches and organizations. Go try stuff. Try stuff we've never mentioned. And, and if you, especially when you find things that are working, get back to me and let me know. Because I think yeah. we're really going to make this change as a community, learning community together, where a couple pastors in Kansas find something out, they call me, and then I start spreading it to all the pastors I know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's no experts in this. Uh, There's no heroes in this this new other half of church. It's going to be very much a community effort where we're all trying stuff and sharing what's working and sharing what's not working and we're learning together.
1: That's good because that's one of the dilemmas we had with the uh book group that I was we were reading the book with was you know, we're we're trying to educate, you know, ourselves on the be you know how the right half of the brain works, but we're reading a book. So it's the left half of the brain processing what should be going on in the right half of the brain. But yep. we were having a discussion as a community. So that helped us out a little bit. But, uh, you know, the main thing was these concepts were just were, were so new to us. Yep. So we have joy and we have hased, and we have group identity and then we have loving correction healthy correction healthy correction there we go i knew there was yeah. something some some adjective beforehand so what does healthy correction look like hey so group identity stop it. yeah exactly
0: <laughs> group identity uh, tells us who we are what it looks like to be our people to act like our people like the people who got healthy correction uh, shows us what to do when we stop acting like acting like ourselves which all of us do at times, we call it healthy correction because most of us kind of flinch at the word correction because most of us have been corrected in the unhealthy way. Unhealthy correction is basically I just tell you what you did wrong and then I leave. It's some form of the message that you are bad. You know, you screwed up. Don't do that again. It's a threat. It's a, and I leave you there. And so part of the exercises, and you, and you said, yeah, a book is a, is a mainly, mainly a left brain thing, but the exercises at the end of each chapter will then bring you into your right brains every one of those exercises is pretty right brain dominant even one of the exercises is rejecting unhealthy correction you know we need to practice rejecting the wrong kind of correction that's that doesn't invite us into a community but leaves us there as you are bad but a healthy correction the kind of form is you know alan back there i think i think you forgot who we are. Let me remind you. You know, when you did let's say you got mad at me instead of me you mad at you in a meeting or something, you blew your stack. And, and I say, you know, um I really love working with you in our church. And I love how God has made you and you're and you are a you are a, a kind and, and patient person. And, and it seemed like back there you kind of forgot who you are. So are you open for me kind of reminding us who we are? You know, we are a people who are very slow to speak and but we're very fast to listen. And it seemed you're a bit you were pretty fast to speak there. And when Susan brought up that one comment that you didn't care for, it seemed like you stopped listening. And that's not like you. And I just wanted to, I wanted to remind you who you are because I like you so much. and I'm so glad we get to work together. So that's an example of healthy correction, which I'm inviting you into the relationship. I'm making a very relationship. I'm showing where you forgot who you were. And I'm saying, come back to us and let's, let me remind you who we really are
1: in this, this kind of a situation, like in this meeting. On the way that you approach that, I mean, it felt affirming just hearing you say that to me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even, you know, a real issue in this instance. I will give you an example. Years ago, um, when I was on staff at a church in California, I had uh, fallen into the habit of using a word that wasn't very polite, and I won't tell you what it was, Um, but my senior pastor pulled me into his office in a very caring, very loving way, said, when you use this word, it takes away from who you are.
0: Mm.
1: And I stopped Using the world. It wasn't a matter of, well, you know, you're a pastor. You're a man of God. You should Knock know better. Off. You should yeah. stop talking. It wasn't a scolding way. It was yeah. a very gentle, loving way. This takes away from who you are. And because of that, I was very open and accept. It actually it worked. I, I dropped that term from my vocabulary, and I'm sure everybody was relieved. Kind of the formula is, is, is we affirm our attachment, our hesed. Mm hmm.
0: And then I tell you how, how I, I think I perceive that, that you stopped acting like yourself. And then I remind you what it looks like. How, how do our people act in that kind of a
1: situation? Yeah, exactly. And this idea of I'm, I'm not going to throw you away. I'm not going to leave you behind. I'm not going to look down on you. We're, we're family. We're growing together. We're, none of us are perfect, but we're also not going to give up on you. Right, And that, you know, that in itself was very affirming. So we have the four soils and I know there's so much there, yeah. but, um, you also talk about in the book that if those four soils, the joy has said, uh, group identity and healthy correction, I got it right. That time, if those things are not present, then it allows for narcissism. So what, what is narcissism and how do these soils or these elements, how do they to uh, curtail that?
0: So narcissism is the weed that grows in depleted soil, the depleted relational soil. A narcissist is a person who's unable to receive correction. You know, the technical definition that Jim Wilder told us is, is a narcissist, the person who's unable to metabolize the emotion of shame. Metabolize means you stay relational. You can stay relational when someone is, shame is really the opposite of joy. I'm not happy to be with you right now, right? So if I was quick to speak when Susan, say Susan said something I didn't like and I kind of lambasted her, you saw that in the meeting, you come to me, but your face, you know, in that moment, you weren't that happy to be with me. Because you're seeing me not act like myself. So we, if we can stay, and then when you come to my office, I can tell from your face that there's there's something wrong. There's something between us right now, right? My, I'm reading that. My brain is reading that nonverbally before a word comes out of your mouth. Can I stay relational in that moment, or do all of a sudden, and that's that 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 feeling of shame, where okay, Al, Alan's not pleased with me, and I, and then. If I can metabolize and stay relational and shame, I'm like, okay, speak to me. Maybe you're right, Alan. If I cannot metabolize shame, if I can't receive risk correction, I'm thinking the four or five points that I need to tell Alan to show him that I'm right and he's wrong. I'm using self-justifying in order to keep your correction away from my character, you know, because we really have, we have a broken picture of, of leadership in our country that's very heavily tainted by narcissism. We actually see a narcissistic leader and often think, wow, what a strong leader, what a bold person. But if we you know, take that leader on one hand and take a look, good hard look at Jesus, we don't
1: see that in Jesus at all. No, no, we don't. And then we usually wonder, wow, they were such a powerful leader. They were such a great speaker. They grew such a great church. Why did that happen to them? Yep. And uh, yeah, we were kind of championing the wrong things. My encounters with narcissism have been people that you know because they they can't accept metabolize shame i like how you put that um then they blame other people for what yep. they did they try to justify themselves I've, I've even been in situations where you know people were were paying for a service and then the narcissist blamed the customer for not accomplishing what they had paid for and i'm just right. like how in the world is that the customer's fault? Um, yeah. Now, having had that, have some of those experiences in my own life where I was ready for you to go in the book and you guys let me down, but where yeah. I wanted you to go was uh-huh. to say, get your torches, get your pitchforks, drive the narcissists out of the church. And then you turned around and said, these healthy communities with these elements we need to love our narcissist and i just sat there and said no
0: yeah relationally speaking a narcissist is like a person with a broken leg it, you know it's a it's a deep brokenness can we can we get through their self justifications and their need to win all arguments and inability to receive any kind of corrections and see them from jesus's eyes which is like oh this person is is um, broken and needs help. Don't abandon them. Don't leave this man or this woman behind. Now, a lot of us think, you know, even even most psychologists believe narcissism, narcissism is incurable. And, and it and you know, Jim Wilder is really an expert in that. And he would say, you know, narcissism is incurable in a one-on-one situation, like with a counselor or one-on-one confrontation, it's never going to work. You need to bring in the group identity area of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex on the right side. You need to have lots of well-built. Uh, strong attachments to him well-built group identity that he agrees with and if you can start appealing very gently you know we're gentle confronters right we're not harsh confronters but we're not we're not gentle um enablers we're gentle confronters when we see someone not acting like who we are as as the people of God and we gently confront and say hey I, I you know I don't I really appreciate the that you're leading this meeting you know, I appreciate the effort. And it was a really good meeting, too. I think we got a lot got done. But the way you handled with Susan there, it seemed to me like you were really, really quick to speak and to, to let her know that you were right and she was wrong. And, uh, and if you remember from our group identity that we've been practicing, you know, we're not a people. We are a people that are, are slow to speak and, clo- and, and very, very, very fast to listen. And it seemed you were the opposite. If you've been doing, the, preparing the soil of that church, you know, this is hard to do because sometimes narcissists won't let you do that. Right. So we're speaking about the ideal model. We're also speaking about every church should be doing this, even if you don't have a narcissistic pastor, because who knows, you know, the next staff member or pastor that comes along. If you're building up your soil right now and they get there, they, the narcissism them will not be able to thrive. And so they will either change or they will jump ship. But what they won't do is what happens too often is go like a weed and just start growing everywhere and covering all the plants up,
1: and squeezing all the fruit out of that church. That's that's good. It's difficult, but yeah. um, but it's good. So these concepts, obviously, from things that we've learned in seminary, things that we've learned in ministry, you know, speaking of pastors in general, are are different. We didn't have classes on this in school, mm-hmm. um, and I find obviously, you know, a lot of times the dilemma of making disciples is that the disciple maker wasn't ever properly discipled themselves. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but if a pastor or a church is interested in this, clearly they can go and and get a copy of the other half of church. But how do you help pastors implement this in their ministries, in their own lives, in their churches? Yeah,
0: those those you just kind of got on the the first one I would recommend is to go through, read the other half of church, together with your team with your group whatever that whatever that is for your ministry or church um there's a church here in boulder that the entire 20 person staff read through it but not just read through it um do the exercises together as a matter of fact the reading you can do on your own and maybe discuss some but make sure you do the the exercises at the end of the chapter together and let that right brain start to develop that's a good easy first step to do that and, and also prepares you for the second thing is that we are we we are open and have are actually developing consulting to ministries and churches where we can meet with you uh, in a consistency or frequency that works for you both in in person if you're in our area or online we can do some travel for one-time events but a lot of what we do is just start to regularly meet with with a team of people in a church and uh, and it's much more training than content. It's new practices and we just do those practices, but we do them together. Again, that's the key, you know, get your kind of key, your people. Usually it's like a team of, you know, five to 12 to 20, somewhere around there. And we just do these practices together. Maybe we'll do it once a month, maybe we'll do it twice a month. And then you'll be able to practice things in between the meetings and over and over again, and then come back and we unpack those practices. And that's one of the most important things to do, you know, because some people will love it and other people will go, you know, that didn't seem to work for me at all. And handling that the right way and unpacking both of those well is what it's the best learning experience you can have. Yeah. And so yeah. we would love to work with you if you have happy you know, we, and we're very flexible in how we offer it, you know, for different schedules for different kinds of ministries and churches. But we would love to help you get the other half of church
1: into um, your community. You know, in the book, you talk a lot about the group that met down in, the, in your basement. Yep. And I think the longing from everybody in this book group that we had. Was they they really wanted to see a recording of what was going on in that basement yep. and what you guys were were doing? So how <laughs> so very practically, how, how are you integrating these practices in your life right now as a believer? What does that look like?
0: Well, one of the joy practices I do. One of the I'm going to teach you several. If we work together, I'll teach you several ways that we things we do to to build joy. One of them is uh, good gratitude practices. And there's even a non-verbal gratitude practice where you go back, you start making a list of gratitude memories where, you know, it's something you're really grateful for. You feel like you can kind of feel God involved in it. You can feel his pleasure or his, or his, his smile or him saying something or communicating something to you. And you can go back and relive it and kind of feel it in your body again. And, and that's kind of like a, a, a gratitude memory practice that you sit. you're sitting in gratitude in a memory. It's not verbal. You're kind of reliving it. And that's really, really healthy for your brain. And it also builds hesed with God. Because you're going back into some kind thing God did for for you. And you're marinating in it. And you're just built. So it's building joy with God, which builds our hesed with God, you know, and our attachment to him. That's one of the things I do every day. Another one is quieting. Learning how to quiet two things. Quiet big emotions and learning how to quiet the hamster wheel of thoughts. And then to sit. We find this all over scripture. You know, it's not so much a Buddhist meditation where they kind of sit into a nothingness. Rather, we're, what we're, our meditation is, it's like, its I don't even call it meditation. I call it quieting because that's what David says. I've still calmed and quieted my soul. We read the Psalms, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still and know I'm God. We're quieting the thoughts and we're just sitting in God's presence and just enjoying his presence with no thoughts and no words. And so instead of a nothingness, it's very much a fullness. I actually start feeling God's presence more strongly when I can stop the hamster hamster wheel and when I can calm the big emotions and then I just sit in his presence. I do that three minutes every day. And sometimes it's so good. I'll just keep going on and it'll be a half hour. So there's a couple of right brain practices that will build your joy and your hesed in your community and in your own life. And it's kind of a foundational skill as well for other things we'll build on top of.
1: That's great. That's great. And I, I practiced silence for a number of years and it's a difficult thing to do. And some people have, you know, thought, well, wait a minute, isn't this, you know, like transcendental meditation or something? I'm like, no, it's not. It, I like the idea, the notion of quieting yourself, but the thought to me was, God doesn't need me to figure out anything right now. God doesn't need me to troubleshoot anything or plan anything. That he's in control of all that, and all I, I'm just I'm just with my heavenly Father right now, and I can just be quiet and enjoy His presence, and you know, and just calm all of that down. And it does so many things as far as you know stress. I do that, I set it on my calendar a couple times a day, and um, it just it changes my whole outlook. And even being in some situations that were kind of rocky, I found that I could be a little more steady through those. just by by quieting myself well michael this is so great i could just talk Mm. to you forever and maybe i'll have you back (laughs) at some point uh but thank you thank you for the book and uh, thank you for getting the word out there for joining us and so for those who uh, want more information about the uh, books or about the uh uh, consulting that michael does uh, you can find that in the uh, show notes but thank you for being here today really appreciate it
0: thank you alan so much i really enjoyed this and thank you everyone who's listening and. I love that you're going on this journey with
1: us. Now, at this point, you may be asking, Hey, where's the Ask Allen segment with the funny prize wheel? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Ask Allen segment has actually become its own weekly podcast called the Healthy Groups Podcast. For more information, go to alanwhite.org forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode with Michael Hendricks, please share it with a friend. And to help others find us, please rate and review this podcast on your preferred podcast platform. Say that three times fast. All right. Thank you for listening.